This is Truth Jihad Radio, questioning official stories since 2006. Please subscribe by way of the Substack button at truthjihad.com. The key thing is, don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink, or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think that the most important, the most compelling was, uh, was 9-11 itself. Welcome. This is Truth Jihad Radio. I'm your host, Kevin Barrett, waging free speech on the Internet airwaves since 2006, bringing on all kinds of interesting guests, some of whom are uh, way outside the mainstream box, questioning the proverbial wisdom, the conventional wisdom, and proffering other views. Some of them I totally agree with, others not so much. Tonight, we're going to be all over the map here with some really interesting folks. In the second hour... Michelle Malkin, the former Fox News pundit, will be with us, and she's moved over uh, from Fox News and now is doing her own thing with me at the UNS Review, that's U-N-Z dot com. And she's taken some flack, apparently, for hanging out with the pariahs at UNS dot com. In fact, she was banned from Airbnb, and her husband was banned for Airbnb just because of their... Uh, well, shall we say controversial political views? I don't know. I've, my views are at least as controversial as hers, probably. And I'm just waiting to get banned from lodging. And what next? Food? <laughs> We're living in a strange, brave new world, folks. Anyway, Michelle Malkin will come on in the second hour. In the second half hour, James Howard Kunstler, one of our notable authors, will join me. He hasn't been on the show for like 10 years or something, so it'll be great to have him back. Now, interestingly enough, uh, James Howard Kunstler and Michelle Malkin have both been accused with some justification of being, quote-unquote, Islamophobes. Well, hey, I'm Muslim, but I'm not going to cancel them. I'm not going to censor them. I'm just going to try and talk to them and reason with them and have an honest dialogue. I think that's a lot better than censoring and canceling people. Okay, I think we have our first half-hour guest on the line, Daoud Bachelor. He is the author of Muhammad, the Ultimate Leader, from a Western business, or rather, from Western business perspectives, and it is a fantastic book. Surpassed my expectations. Highly recommended. Um, really, the most inspiring thing I've read in that genre of what leadership uh, inspiration. So, uh, Daoud, uh, are you there? Salam uh, yes, Kevin, uh, Dr. Kevin. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you for the invitation to uh, appear again this evening on your show. It's great to have you back. And, you know, I, I love your book. It's really well done. You know, it's uh, it, it, it's a hybrid, really, of sort of two genres, a prophetic biography and inspirational business leadership. And it works. Oh, great. Congratulations. Yeah. So, you know, where, where do we start here? I guess, you know, your book starts with the observation that uh, Christians who uh, revere their, their prophet and, and savior and Messiah, and of course we agree that he's the Messiah, that's uh, Satan, Isa, or Jesus, uh, may have a hard time 
kind of thinking of him as a role model for activities in the world, whereas the Prophet Muhammad, peace upon him, is obviously a role model for being a statesman, an organizer, a leader in worldly activities. And uh, Michael Hart, the Christian biographer, noted that that might make uh, the final prophet, the prophet of Islam, the most influential single figure in human history. So you, you've chosen a, a big topic. Yeah, yes. Uh, well, uh, yeah, Michael, Michael Hart, um, you know, uh, wrote a key book, uh, um, The Hundred Most Influential Humans of All Time. And uh, he placed uh, Prophet Muhammad, peace be on him, first. And um, he, he noted that uh, Jesus Christ, on whom be peace, was not a father, a husband, nor a ruler or a military commander or statesman. So consequently, he remarked that Jesus cannot be a full role model for us. However, he believed Muhammad was as influential as Jesus Christ on a spiritual level and as well Muhammad may well rank as the most influential political leader of all time. So this was the like unparalleled, unparalleled combination of secular and religious influence, which he felt entitled Muhammad to be considered the most influential single figure in human history. So that is coming from a, a Christian perspective. But um, uh, can I can I uh, sort of uh, explain my concept in writing the book, which might yes, please uh, please do make make it uh, more understandable for your listeners. Um, yeah, ba- basically, uh, um, you know, I accumulated evidence that um, Muhammad, peace be upon him, was the ultimate leader of all time. But a non-Muslim um, would not necessarily um, accept that. Um, and probably uh, wouldn't at first um, uh, in, in his first position. Um, but so I would say then, well, how about if I um, look at an unbiased standard for assessment? Um, I use uh, leadership criteria from uh, Western business writings and also uh, Western military writings. Um, to uh, identify the criteria to evaluate, um, you know, Prophet Muhammad's, um, you know, um, life uh, history. And um, so so if I could um, prove with evidences in his life that uh, he um, excelled in each of these criteria and to the maximum extent, uh, would you then accept my thesis that Muhammad is the ultimate leader of all time? Uh, so you're asking me that, or you're asking the general uh, readers that? Yeah, that's that's for all readers, um, whether they're Muslim or non-Muslim. But I, I I'm looking at an unbiased standard for assessment, and and this is the basis on which I wrote my book. I accumulated the evidences. In the, in the criteria fields that uh, came up when I um, evaluated um, uh, books, uh, Western uh, business writers on leadership. Uh, so that, that's the uh, basis of uh, my book, basically. And, and you know, one, one of the uh, character traits uh, of, of the prophet that 
resonates in many of the inspirational writings for business leaders and such uh, is a kind of cheerfulness and optimism. There's a whole genre of inspirational writings based on that. I remember my, my uncle was a fan of those kinds of writings, and I remember him recommending people like Napoleon Hill, the author of Think and Grow Rich, who asserted that if you, you know, positive thinking will make you rich. Of course, there was that famous Power of Positive Thinking uh, book as well as that Norman Vincent Peale or someone like that. So there's that whole genre of, uh, of, of being positive and optimistic and cheerful and such. And uh, you cover very well how uh, the Prophet Muhammad, peace upon him, was rather extraordinarily um, optimistic due to his absolute faith and trust in God, that he was part of God's plan, that God had sent this message through him. And, you know, once he fully accepted that, partly with the help of his uh, wife, Khadija, uh, that seemed to guide his life in such a way that he was able to have a totally peaceful and cheerful disposition with total faith that his project was going to work out, even though the circumstances realistically certainly didn't look like uh, it could possibly work out. So I, I thought that was an, an interesting uh, convergence there, the kind of optimism that's recommended by the inspirational business writers and then this kind of uh, almost metaphysically grounded optimism uh, of the prophet. Yes, uh, definitely, Kevin. And uh, uh, I believe that uh, this is one of the evidences of his um, prophethood, that he had, um, you know, 100% faith in uh, God Almighty that um, – uh, even though he was facing um, horrendous challenges, that Allah would uh, grant him success. So he, he was always uh, looking on the optimistic side of things, that um, there's, there's always benefit in whatever is happening. And, uh, you know, we, we have the hadith that uh, wondrous is the affair of the believer. There is good for him in everything. Uh, and that is only for the believer. If good times come his way, he expresses gratitude to God. And that is good for him. And if hardship comes his way, he endures patiently, and that is better for him. So uh, it, it is like, like uh, people say he was uh, the most cheerful of people and the most smiling of people. And to imagine that um, that he was like this um, during um, like the period of his uh, uh, you know prophethood, and and particularly in the last. Um, 10 years um, in Medina, where he was facing um, great challenges uh, that um, the tribes were trying to, you know, wipe out his, um, um, the existence of a small band of believers and the prophet, peace be on him. Um, and, and, and also when, uh, you know, after the um, victory of, um, in Mecca, uh, which surrendered to him, uh, that he had um, all these roles of, uh, you know, military commander, uh, justice, chief justice. He was a family man. Uh, he was a teacher and a guide. And uh, he was also um, receiving the revelation of the Quran through this uh, whole period. And he used to um, uh, get very um, small amounts of sleep and he was standing for hours reciting the Quran in the middle of the night. Um, with all these uh, challenges and um, and uh, battles going on, that he remained cheerful and optimistic um, uh, for the whole time. So that that is um, a, a great uh, characteristic of our beloved prophet. 
And, and how, how about the issue of the the cause in which he was optimistic as opposed to the kind of cause that the Western business leadership literature is addressing people to be optimistic about? In In the first case, this cause was God's message being promulgated and and the, the truth and justice being witnessed in a very difficult situation against uh, an oligarchy that was determined to, as you say, stamp out this small band of believers uh, versus the cause of the Western business aspirants is generally sort of success measured in financial terms. And that's part of what I've called the uh, Western uh, secular materialist humanist uh, sort of liberal dispensation that puts the individual pursuit of happiness at the top of its list of values and insists that each individual is going to pursue happiness in their own way. And so, you know, there's no overarching set of values by which to measure what might make this person or that person happy. So um, many people, uh, especially here in the United States, where the pursuit of happiness is written into our (laughs) Declaration of Independence, uh, are convinced that happiness means material success. And that's what the business literature addresses. So uh, can you reflect on the the sort of the the difference between the types of causes that are being pursued uh, in both cases? Uh, yes, uh, this is uh, like uh, bringing um, bringing up the uh, major difference uh, between the uh, prophet's uh, mission and um, the, the uh, often the mission of um, uh, you know business leaders. Um, but um, then again, uh, the human material is the same, and uh, uh, you know to be effective, uh, one must. Um, you know, consider the nature of human beings. And um, uh, Prophet, um, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, peace be on him, um, you know, was addressing uh, this human material. And his concern uh, was uh, not making it for any material uh, benefit, but for, uh, you know, safeguarding um, these people from the hellfire and, um, and engendering their success. Uh, both in this world and the next. Uh, so the, the mission and the objectives and the intentions are, are very different. Uh, but I, I would say that uh, if uh, Western business leaders um, take on board, um, you know, their sincere concerns, uh, you know, for uh, their followers, that they will achieve uh, much greater success and achieving harmony and uh, peace and uh, motivation in the uh, workforce. Um, uh, they can achieve better um, business outcomes, um, I believe. Um, but, uh, you know, like uh, generally, uh, you know, spiritual aspects are largely removed from the concern of uh uh, Western business leaders uh, are the same as, uh, you know, Western science uh, doesn't take into account spirituality. And this is a, a deficient, actually. And um, to some extent, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, sort of, um, what is the word, um, emotional quotient um, 
looking at managing emotions and self-discipline uh, is probably the um, area that uh, brings us closest to spirituality. And uh, this is um, considered uh, these days as uh, being uh, more important than IQ, uh, that uh, leaders are able to evaluate themselves and their motives and uh, stay calm under uh, uh, um, you know, very great difficulties in business um, at all times and motivate uh, their followers. Um, that, um, you know, emotional quotient is uh, so important. And, um, and this is related to actually purification of the soul and uh, disciplining the soul, uh, which is uh, explained by Imam Abu Hamid Ghazali as a wild horse that will take you whichever way it wants to go, but you need to uh, train it and discipline it so it takes you in the direction that you want to go. And this applies to any human being uh, that uh, they are they are working on um, controlling their emotions and their egos so they can uh, operate better as human beings and, uh, and be efficient leaders. Um, so, yeah, although the... Um, Objectives uh, might be uh, different um, in the uh, di- uh, roles of the prophet, peace be on him, and those of a Western business leader. Um, those uh, Western business leaders will be um, more successful if they uh, read this book and take um, on board uh, many of these uh, qualities, which um, uh, are maybe not so stressed in Westerns- Western business literature, but are essential in um, achieving good results. Um, and, and after all, God Almighty is in, cha- in charge of everything. Um, so these qualities of like humility or servant leadership, uh, generosity and self-sacrifice, um, being uh, magnanimous and forgiving, uh, making things easier, um, these these are uh, criteria which are probably not stressed so much in uh, Western business literature, but are certainly essential elements in um, Islamic leadership um, that uh, Western leaders could um, well take on board and benefit from, I would suggest. In, indeed, I agree completely. Uh, it, it occurs to me that one of the issues uh, that contributes to EQ or uh, emotional intelligence, which, as you said in your book, you you say that the researchers have found that emotional intelligence is about twice as important in terms of contributing to success as IQ or standard intelligence. And I, I wonder if part of the secret of the success of uh, the prophet's uh, in- incredible off the charts level of emotional intelligence, well, of course, it, it was due to his connection with Allah or God, uh, and that developed through his practice of meditation in the cave on Mount Hira in particular, where he got that first revelation. And today there's a literature on success through meditation, which is said to improve people's emotional intelligence and stability and their, in particular, their threshold of tolerance. Like people can handle so much before they go crazy or they, you know, lash out or have a hard time dealing with things. And, and people who meditate have been found to have uh, that higher threshold. And I, I just happened to talk about this in the chutbah today. So, uh, I was reflecting on your book and I, I thought of that, that in fact, 
the practice of, of the five times daily prayer, the Salat that the Prophet taught his followers that we still do, is a form of meditation on God. And then there are other forms as well, the muraqaba or, or vigilance and, and dhikr or remembrance of God and so on. So it, it occurs to me that part of this emotional intelligence of both the Prophet, peace upon him, and his original band of followers may have been due to these practices of what white might call sort of divinely inspired meditation that they they all learned and practiced. Uh, yes, uh, yeah, that's uh, certainly um, yeah, a very valid observation, Kevin. And uh, this is uh, the means of, uh, you know, training the soul and uh, purifying the soul and um, also that when we're in prayer, as, as you will know, we are speaking um, directly to uh, God Almighty. Um, so we, we are also um, um, at two levels. Uh, one, we are sort of uh, training our emotional state, um, purifying it. Um, on the other, uh, we're connecting with uh, God Almighty and, um, and knowing also that... Um, uh, you know, the, the universe and everything will vanish one day and that um, will, uh, only God will, the face of Allah will remain. Um, and also the, the hadith about the, um, uh, the real value of, uh, you know, the, the worldly life is, uh, you know, <clears throat> I mean, the value of, um, you know, the world's um, uh, in the in the eyes of Allah is like the wing of a mosquito or less. Or uh, so so the reality is, um, and it's a paradox that um, the Prophet, um, peace be on him, um, he was he was actually living in two worlds, um, in the material world, but also in the spiritual world at the same time. And um, the the paradox is that. Um, uh, the, uh, you know, the important, um, aspiration is for the next world and that this world in reality is of, uh, no, of little value and that we are basically, um, just, um, trying to upgrade our own, uh, spiritual state in this world as we go. Um, but, uh, that, that also doesn't negate the fact that, um, um, Allah in his wisdom has, uh, uh, created this world for human beings and um, animals and plants, and um, that uh, we are to strive in it, and uh, uh, so that uh, you know the um, economics is, um, is is a field of aspiration um, that we we also um, need need to treat seriously and um, uh, for the uh, benefit um, for the maslaha of uh, society. And, and that not for harming society uh, that uh, uh, we we strive in this world. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a balance um, in um, our life in this world and our aspiration to achieve success um, in paradise in the next. Uh, that uh, we we do uh, develop these uh, a close contact with uh, God Almighty. And, uh, and remember him at all times and, uh, continue to train our, uh, desires and ego to be in harmony, uh, with his, um, uh, um, uh, his orders and his, uh, prohibitions, uh, which are basically for our own benefit anyway to achieve, uh, peace and calm and tranquility 
in the face of uh, difficulties that we might face in this world. Well, very well put. The uh, practice of, of shura or asking for advice is uh, institutionalized in Islam and it goes back to the example of the prophet and you mentioned that this is also something that is accepted that the leadership in business and other endeavors today is enhanced when people do actually solicit the views of others and then sometimes follow them and that that's an interesting sort of uh, contrast with the the image a lot of people have of a divinely inspired prophet would be somebody who's just saying, well, God says do this, just do it. But in fact, in the career of Prophet Muhammad, peace upon him, we had uh, many, many examples where uh, there was a shura or a consultation with others and uh, he would listen to advice and their nasiha from others and often take it and then distinguish between the times when he did have divine inspiration and other times when he just had his own opinion and he was willing to listen to somebody else's that might be better. So that that's uh, uh, something that many non-Muslim listeners might not be aware of. Uh, yes, that, uh, that is the case, uh, Kevin, that he... Uh, and, and this is... Amrahum Surah Bainakum is a directive from Allah Almighty... Uh, to, to believers, um, that they need to conduct, uh, uh, shura consultation, um, with, uh, their, their brothers and their companions, um, in, um, in important matters. Um, um, and, and of course, uh, that, that also applies, um, even in the, in the marriage unit, um, uh, that, um, you know, men as, um, normally considered leaders of the household should, um, include their wives um, in consultation and benefit um, from their suggestions, um, and uh, you know it, it brings about uh, um, a buying in from uh, the followers when uh, this is this is uh, uh, carried out. And uh, as you said, um, Kevin, that uh, the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam used to accept advice and. Uh, um, you know, there's a case, um, for instance, uh, on whether, uh, you know, the uh, companions should um, attack the caravan um, of the Quraysh, um, which brought about the Battle of Badr. Um, and um, uh, Abu Bakr, radiallahu uh, anhu, who gave his uh, advice and the Prophet didn't react, and then Umar uh, other uh, major companion gave his advice, and uh, the prophet sort of was like he wasn't listening. But then he he uh, received a comment from uh, one of the, um, uh, I believe, Ansar, um, who gave their advice, and that they would be ready to, you know, carry their camels on a back or, and uh, and do whatever the prophet uh, uh, advised um, uh, them to do. And at that time. Uh, the Prophet made the decision then that uh, he would uh, go ahead with the uh, Battle of Badr, even though um, the eventuality was that they were outnumbered 313, uh, 2,000 of the enemy, but um, of course they were supported by um, um, armies of uh, angels um, as well, so they were successful. And normally with Shura, that that will provide uh, success. Uh, uh, So uh yeah uh, there are also occasions where um the prophet accepted um advice 
Um, I believe it was Uhud, if I'm not mistaken, uh, to go out from the city and uh, and fight um, at, at, at Uhud, uh, whereas he preferred to sort of stay in the town. Um, but he followed that advice, and um, uh, that that battle almost uh, resulted in disaster for Hello. the Muslims. Um, Hello. Yes. Are you, are you there, Kevin? Yeah. Yes. I'm sorry. I think maybe, do we have Jim, uh, James? I'm on Skype. Kessler I'm there? waiting for you to call. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah. Well, I don't. I um, somehow you connected. Uh, I thought the studio was going to call you, but I'm glad you're there. Just hang on for a second as. Uh, I say goodbye to my first half-hour guest, Dowd Bachelor. Okay. Well, Dowd, thank you so much. That's uh, fascinating information. Uh, I really am impressed by your book. Again, it surpassed expectations, and I think anybody uh, who approaches it with an open mind will find it a very, very interesting uh, and illuminating read. It's called Muhammad, the Ultimate Leader from Western Business Perspectives. Uh, So thank you, uh, Dowd Bachelor. And look forward to speaking with you again soon, inshallah. Uh, thank you, Kevin. I uh, look forward to talk on uh, other subjects sometime. Okay, yeah, well, we're talking about 9-11 next time. <laughs> okay, <laughs> take care. Bye-bye. Inshallah. That's Dowd Bachelor. And now moving from uh, Australia to <clears throat> upstate New York, it's James Howard Kunstler, the notable American writer who seems to perhaps have been a little bit marginalized by the mainstream, just like my second-hour guest tonight, Michelle uh, Malkin, for maybe uh, being a little too forthright, honest, and in-your-face. And that's what his latest article definitely is. It's the wake-up call article. Uh, Brilliant stuff. Uh, James Howard Kessler, you're still cranking out fantastic writing. (laughs) Hello, Jim. Uh, thank, Thank you very much, Kevin. Yeah. Um, Although that's not my latest. I publish on Mondays and Fridays, and I have a new one up today. Oh, no, I missed it. What's it about? Um, It's called uh, Dishonesty is a Bad Business Plan. (laughs) Well, it's a bad business plan, but it's kind of the dominant one these days. Um, I very much look forward to that. So so you want to quickly summarize that one? Oh, I don't know. It's, you know, it's about uh, the... All of the uh, uh, lying and dishonesty around the COVID uh, pandemic and the uh, way it's been used to push Americans around. And, you know, that's really basically what is going on here. I, By the way, you know, I, I'm still a registered Democrat after all these years, but I've become uh, very um, hostile to the party, I think. And, uh, you know, I consider it to be the uh, party of chaos now. Yeah. And, um Absolutely. The the dirty secret about the whole progressive woke democratic movement now is that it's not about ideas or policies at all. It's simply about coercion and pushing people around and in sadistically enjoying the punishments that you inflict on people. It's really it's a it's it's a sadistic movement. And um, I uh, intend to do everything I can to help put it down. I can relate to that completely. You know, I always thought of myself as more left-leaning. Uh, you know, on that well, short. I was never left-leaning leaning myself, but I was a Democrat, kind of a well, centrist. Yeah, centrist Democrat. That's what my dad was. Uh, but these days, I just can't relate to any of these people. I don't know what's gotten into them, but you know, identity politics has run amok. And as you say, they're uh, sadistically running around and canceling people, and these these woke mobs 
uh, are essentially scapegoating and you know crucifying everybody that gets in their way. Uh, well, I have a theory about this. You know, um, uh, it's kind of in line with a an idea that was introduced a couple of months ago into the public arena, and um, uh, it's called the mass formation psychosis idea. It was popularized by a professor from the University of Ghent in Belgium named Matthias Desmet. And uh, the, the the idea is basically that uh, if you deprive people of any kind of sense of community, uh, contact with other people, or meaning and purpose in their lives, that they will do desperate things. And one of the desperate things that they will do in a group is form into a mob and, and go hysterical. It's like the transformation that grasshoppers go through when they turn into locusts. You know? <laughs> and it happens periodically in history. You know, there there have been many mass hysterias uh, and, and things like it. And um, uh, I, I think that uh, for us lately in America, well, in Western Civ, really, uh, the current hysteria has grown out of all the anxiety that surrounds the potential collapse of uh, Western uh, uh, advanced economies and all the comforts and conveniences that they produce for us. And it's a very real uh, fear, but uh, people really, I think, are having a hard time understanding it, why it's happening. You know, they see it, they, they see it expressed in things like the destruction of the middle class, including themselves. You know, the, uh, not being able to keep up with their expenses, you know, having to work three jobs in order to pay all those bills off. And, and, uh, it's got people pretty crazy. And, um, so, uh, uh, the other thing that a, the mass formation requires is some kind of a, an object to fix its, uh, hysteria on. And for, uh, starting in 2016, that was Donald Trump. But when the COVID-19 thing came along and um, which helped to push Donald Trump Trump off stage and get him get him out of the arena altogether, uh, we segued directly into the um, COVID-19 thing. And that was uh, just another way to push people around, you know, using uh, the pandemic. And uh, that's where things stand now. Uh, uh, One more thing about this, this pushing people around and. And the sadistic punishments involved. Uh, human beings are extremely status oriented. And really what's going on with all of this competitive cancellation and competitive uh, seeking out of uh, new people to persecute is the collecting brownie points for status. And that's exactly especially what you're seeing in the university campus where, you know, basically unformed personalities uh, are driven to fortify their own personal status within, you know, the, the hothouse environment of a campus. And, uh, so, you know, they go out and they find something to be offended by and then they make that the target for their sadistic punishments. So that's, that's pretty much the whole picture. Yeah, I, I agree. I remember when I was an undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin in like 76 to 81, 
there were people who try to be more left wing than thou. I got fed up with that very quickly and just, uh, you know, realized that they were all crazy. You know, the, the uh, Trotskyites trying to prove that they were more left wing than the Stalinists and things like that. And yeah, it seems yeah. like some of these people these days are doing something similar, as you say, rack, racking up their little status points. I had very early experience with that because uh, as a fluke, I got elected student government president at my college uh, when I was a sophomore. Uh, it was completely a fluke and a stunt. But I ended up in that position nonetheless, and I had to, it was 1968 and 69, and it was like the height of the student revolution. And I was sore beset by the various factions of the left, and, you know, became, became very hip to their, uh, their tricks at that time. So I've known about this for over 50 years. Right. Well, you know, you mentioned uh, a preoccupation of yours uh, for decades, which is the possible collapse of the uh, middle class lifestyle that we enjoy, uh, industrial civilization itself, perhaps. You've it's not a preoccupation people. so much as, uh, you know, a story I've been following. Yeah. OK. I'll, I'm not tell, I'm not saying that you're uh, you're crazy to be interested in that theme. I think it's <laughs> it's one of the most important. In way, I think it's repressed a little bit in the same way that terror management theory tells us that people repress the thoughts of their own death. And whenever you remind people of their own death, they get anxious and then they try to repress it and then they become manipulable. I think that's happened with covid. But maybe there's also kind of a death of the culture, or death of middle class uh, industrial society and their own comfortable existence. That people are concerned that that's another impending possibility. And so maybe there's a sort of terror management. Yeah, it's a good larger. Yeah. Uh, you know, what, what you're describing is that the whole scaffold of contemporary life is threatened. And that's that's a scary thing for a lot of people. I mean, and I I think understandably so. I wouldn't put them down for feeling that way. But, you know, we're on kind of a trajectory because of circumstances, not because, you know, there are demonic forces necessarily involved, unless we're talking about the Democratic Party. But, uh, you know, there Wait, are but you, you don't believe in Pizzagate, do you? No, I, I, <laughs> I, 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 I like to think that I'm allergic to, you know, the more extreme conspiracy ideas. Uh, out there, and I, 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 I never thought Pizzagate was. Pizzagate, I never thought Pizzagate was particularly credible. Although you know, one did have to marvel at uh, Tony P- or, or John was John or Tony Podesta's art collection. Yeah, quite an art collection there. Well, if you've read the Franklin scandal and the Franklin cover-up, you would know that there definitely is an elite uh, pedophilia problem. I don't know about the pizza parlor, though. But um, <laughs> in any case, uh, yeah. Well, I COVID. think there's a lot. Look, you know, this is a degenerate culture, and there are certainly a lot of people acting out their degeneracy out there. Um, I'm not sure that it's uh, as widespread a network as people pretend or say, but, you know, it's not the most important thing going on. Uh, it would be pretty, I mean, it's, it sounds pretty horrible, but it also kind of sounds like a, a, a horror movie to me. Mm-hmm. Now, well, getting back to that idea of um, terror management theory and fear of death and also fear of the death of our advanced industrial society with all of its wealth and stuff, COVID really goes actually, it, it hit both because it made people afraid of their own individual death due to COVID. And then also it shut down the world and suddenly our societies were shutting down and the supply chain was disrupted. And next thing you know, that that collapse that Kunstler's been talking about all these years looked like, oh, man, we're getting a foretaste of that. So I think it's kind of a double whammy. Yeah, that's a very good point. It's true. And, uh, you know, really, uh, 
it really uh, uh, bent a lot of minds out of shape. And now we're living with the consequence of all those bent out of shape minds. And w one of the real problems with that is that the thinking classes of America are the worst afflicted with that with that with those bent minds and when when you're think when you, you know when you can't depend on the thinking class to think anymore you got a culture that's in trouble yeah they're they're actually uh, kind of the worst of all well they I, I are did the see, worst I, I saw polls though that showed kind of paradoxically that in terms of uh, vaccine skepticism uh, you, you had a lot of it among the people with no high school education and then, you know, more and more sort of accepting the standard narrative among people with the college education yeah. and uh, up to the master's degree. People with just a master's degree are the most credulous in terms of totally accepting the COVID and vaccine narratives. Then you get up to the PhDs and suddenly you get a bunch of skepticism. They're about as skeptical as the people without the high school diploma. Yeah, but, you know, the difference is, is that the people up there um, probably shut up about it um, and and, uh, and I would imagine that a lot of them pretend to be vaccinated, even if they're not, just to, uh, you know, avoid trouble in, uh, you know, in the institution that there is paying their salaries. Well, so it's a little hard to tell what's going on there. You know, um, personally, uh, I've lost an awful lot of friends uh, in the last two years over all of this business. Um, you know, there's been quite an intertwining of the the themes of uh, wokery and the, you know, the woked up politics of the left and the uh, uh, hypocritical, insane policies of COVID. They they seem to sort of weave in and out. And, and um, you know, the left is bought into both of them. And uh, partly because, you know, the, the disease was politicized successfully and the main political benefit for them was to be able to use mail-in ballots, which were the most susceptible to fraud in an election. And I think that the uh, wish to uh, sustain the COVID pandemic is really just a wish to be able to continue running the same election frauds. But it looks to me like that's not panning out because the the whole narrative for COVID is now shifting. It's shifted hugely in the last week. And every hour there seems to be some new uh development you know a, a state uh, cancels its mask regulations uh i think you know today uh, a judge shot down the federal requirement for federal workers to be vaccinated the mandate and uh you know there are just new developments every couple of hours and uh I think the left wants to change the story really badly because they realize after two years of using COVID-19 to jerk around the American public that the American public is getting ready to jerk them around, maybe at the end of a rope. And, and part of that could be because uh, the other side of the story is starting to seep out and some of that science that we're supposed to trust is becoming more clear and we're seeing that actually what they were telling us is far from the full story. And you know, oh, it's look, it's transparently BS. You know, when 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 you've got Tony Fauci pushing vaccines even this week when it's obvious that the vaccines no longer work, that they're ineffective and that they probably cause a lot of damage to people. And he's still out there trying to push vaccines for children. You know, he's out of his mind. And by the way, one of those new developments was just that, you know, within the last six hours, 
um, Pfizer uh, uh, withdrew its application for uh, uh, vaccinating, uh, I guess it was like five-year-olds and under or something like that for little children. So they withdrew that and probably because they saw that it was, you know, a real loser um, uh, issue, especially with a vaccine that doesn't work anymore. I mean, the whole thing is nuts. Selling a vaccine that doesn't work, that causes a lot of uh, uh, terrible mischief to people's bodies, it, it's totally insane. And, uh, you know, people, it's been insane for months and months. I mean, we've known this for months and months. And yet the American public's been going along with it. And it's really an amazing phenomenon. And, and you mentioned at the end of your article, uh, The Wake Up Call, that it could be a dangerous period now. As, as you say, this narrative is shifting, the truth is starting to surface. And as the ordinary folks begin to understand just how, how they were uh, ripped off and lied to, that there could be a really big backlash. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's been suppressed for, uh, months and months and months. And, um, uh, the middle class and the, just the middle slice of the bell curve of America has really been uh, uh, screwed around very badly and um, injured. You know, their livelihoods have been uh, taken away from them and their businesses and their households have been wrecked and their finances have been wrecked. And, uh, you know, they have uh, a, a lot of uh, elite uh, idiots telling them what to think. And, um, you know, I think they've had enough of that. And they're, they're you know, if you push them a little bit more, they're going to rock and roll. Yeah, it seemed like they were betting on the people going along with their rush to scapegoat the unvaccinated, take out yeah, all their well, hostility. That, I mean, that lasted about three weeks. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be working anymore, does it? No. And and another element of what you mentioned a few minutes ago is that, um, you know, I think there's an excellent possibility that uh, the failure of this narrative is going to leave a lot of its proponents utterly confused and dazed. They're not going to understand, you know, why this narrative failed. You know, why this thing they've been supporting for two years has failed. Um, you know, especially the people who have taken three and four vaccinations and boosters, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, who were, who were told that this, uh, vaccine was the sovereign remedy for all the woes of America. And then and now they're going to find out that their bloodstreams are full of spike proteins and their organs are, are, are uh, you know, they have, the capillaries and their organs are getting clogged and God knows what kind of mischief is going on in their, in their blood vessels. Well, I wonder if that cover up is going to have legs or not. You know, there've been some pretty amazing cover ups and, you know, you and I might not agree on what they all are. Mike, ever since I got chased out of the university of Wisconsin in 2006 for talking out of school about nine 11, um, mm -hmm. which was a kind of a, a recurrence of when I was in high school and started reading up about the JFK assassination, I've been convinced that there are some very, very huge issues that we get grotesquely lied to about, and it's very hard to fully correct the record. And one of those is the cancer-causing monkey viruses that were in the polio vaccines in the 1950s. That's still covered up pretty much. Nobody knows about it. I don't uh, know a darn thing about it. 
there you go. <laughs> You're living proof. <laughs> uh, you, you could read the book on Dr. Mary's Monkey by Edward Heslem for that story. Uh, but there are other sources as well, including some mainstream ones. But apparently uh, a heck of a lot of cancers, by some counts, uh, a substantial fraction of all of the increase in the cancer rate since the mid-50s was probably caused by these uh, carcinogenic monkey viruses. And there was a massive uh, cover-up involving the CIA, among others, that basically it's one of those things that they would kill people to cover up. And it was still going on at the point where uh, David Ferry of GFK assassination fame was working on using the same viruses to plan on killing Kennedy and other enemies of the state. Uh, and long anyway, it's, it's, a, it's the craziest conspiracy theory I've ever encountered that's probably true. Yeah, well, I don't know nothing about it. Yeah, well, it's it's if you ever want a really crazy conspiracy, it sounds it sounds just totally nuts, but it's probably true. Check out that one. In any case, if that's true, which I think it probably is to some extent at least, then they've covered up uh, a tremendous amount of, of vaccine damage since the fifties. They knew about it by the well. What was this vaccine uh, uh, theoretically uh, aimed at? What disease was it for? Polio. These were the, the early polio vaccines in the 50s. My dad might very well still be alive know. if he hadn't gotten that vaccine, in my opinion. But uh, I got anyway, that vaccine. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's a roll the dice kind of thing. And, and uh, inshallah, you will roll the right numbers, not the snake eyes. But, you know, that's how it is with COVID, too, apparently. These spike proteins aren't going to kill everybody overnight. But uh, I wonder how long they could cover it up if the damage is as bad as people like uh, Matthew Crawford, who was on my show the other day, saying he thinks he thinks about 200,000 Americans uh, quite likely have died due to these vaccines. Many I think them- it's very hard to tell because, uh, you know, the uh, uh, statistics on who had COVID, who, you know, who was in the hospital but really wasn't suffering from COVID and you know, who died from the remdesivir treatments of COVID and all those things are so fudged that, um, you know, I think uh, there's plenty of room to believe that the vaccines killed a lot of people and we don't know yet. Another thing is, you know, they didn't do autopsies on almost all of these people who died one one way or another. And the reason they didn't do autopsies is because they didn't want to know. So, you know, that's a pretty pretty big problem and it's water over the dam now because you know you're not going to dig those people up or you know you can't do an autopsy on a urn full of ashes from a crematorium so uh you know we'll never know how many of those people exactly died from what mm-hmm. well we maybe should try to inform ourselves about how dangerous these vaccines are if they're going to keep trying to boost people. You know, they say, oh, the booster, you know, the vaccine wears off in six months, so you need a booster, but that wears off in four months, and then you get another booster, and what's it going to wear off in three months, two months, one month? Pretty soon you're boosting yourself every six minutes, like a junkie or something, and uh, if there's a, a negative side effect from that vaccine, you're really going to be exposing yourself big time. I, I think they realize that, and that's why we're seeing uh, them backing off so fast. The, the whole story is so absurd, I almost can't even entertain it anymore. You know, it just violates every rule of reason and logic, and and the fact that people are even entertaining these arguments it just makes me crazy. So how, how does this work? In, like, as I understand it, you're probably still living in uh, kind of a uh, old uh, American town, uh, you know, in the in the center of town. Uh, are, is everybody there masked and hysterical? Do you get in conversation? I'm living in an. I'm living in an. I I, I used to live in Saratoga Springs, New York, which That's is a right. resort town. Yeah, I remember that. Um, and I lived there for about 35 years, but uh, a decade ago, I moved east across the Hudson River. 
okay. to the county between the Hudson River and the Vermont border. And um, my little town is uh, an old factory town with no factories left and pretty pretty beat economically. And, uh, you know, it's got good bones uh, like many New England-type towns. And um, uh, there's almost nothing, no, you know, they're completely deactivated. The town is completely deactivated. And it's a sad little place. But, you know, I, um, I have a nice little homestead on the edge of town, literally 11 feet outside the village tax line. Cool. And, um, you know, I got it because it was a property that could permit me to have a large garden and plant fruit trees and raise chickens. And still walk into town if I had to. I wasn't going to be, you know, marooned out in the boonies. And uh, the landscape here is a kind of a gentle uh, foothills of the Green Mountains. And uh, it's a very beautiful, tender landscape of little dales and hollows and hills and some big hills. And um, uh, I'm a very serious painter on the side. And so... You know, I I have a a real affinity for the landscape and for the things in it. Well, that sounds great. And, and it, how, well, how are the locals dealing with the COVID thing? Oh, uh, you know, the, it's a painful subject because a lot of the locals <laughs> were friends of mine who were all woked up. Uh, you know, there's there, there tends to be kind of a a fairly substantial uh, arty kind of uh, colony of people here. Um, you know, we're not that close to New York City, but a lot of them are New York City refugees. And um, so they're all woke up and they all dumped me. I was playing in three different bands and, you know, they all dumped me. Oh, man, yeah. yeah. My wife had that same problem. She's a jazz singer and, and her band got so woke up that they uh, they basically quit. And now now you have to be masked, <laughs> but she can't sing through her mask. So that's uh, I got thrown out of the last band. For, because they sent a they sent a group letter around soliciting our opinions about masks, and I said that they were stupid, and uh, uh, and two of the uh, male members of the band said that they were offended by it. Oh, you know, no. They were such such wusses, <laughs> and oh, uh, and uh, they were offended, and that I had to be you know kept out of the band from now on. So yeah, that kind of thing's going on. But then there's a whole other group of people who are you know the just the background people in town who uh, a lot of them are underemployed or not employed or on public assistance of one kind or another. You know, there's a kind of a general uh, you know kind of small town. Uh, contemporary criminal kind of uh, strata of people who, you know, make methadrine and don't, you know, and, you know, they, they present themselves as tattooed savages. And I don't know, uh, you know, they were, they're they they're putting their masks on. They're walking around. They're still, you know. Even the tattooed savages are wearing masks? Yeah, the tattooed savages are, are all masked up. They tend to be older around here. This is kind of a geriatric county. I didn't know people that did meth actually lived to get old. Well, uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe they just look old. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that's probably it. But uh, anyway, you know, it is. It tends to be a geriatric county because all the young people over the last thirty years left, and uh, you know, what's left are, are are old people who are no longer employed or can't be employed anymore. And young people who, you know, lack any either skills or incentives to be employed, and they get plenty of support from the government, 
or from their criminal activities. And, uh, you know, it, it's put small town America into, uh, through a, a tremendous character transformation so that almost all the old verities and virtues are gone. Last Saturday, last Saturday, uh, uh, some visitor from so California. We hit the bumper music, so it's got to tell this story very quickly. Oh. 30 seconds. Oh, last, last Saturday, uh, a visitor from California burned down the biggest building on our main street. And, um, so that's the kind of thing. Small that's, town that's kind America. Of demoralized. Ain't what it used to be. Uh, no. that's too bad because uh, your, your yearning for nice small town America, uh, is, is one of the things I love. We're going to get there, believe me. We're working on it. All right. Well, yeah, thank we you so much, James Howard Kunstler. Jim, your writing is still, uh, as great as ever. It's just fantastic stuff. Keep up the good work. Okay. Thanks a lot, Kevin. Okay. Take care. Bye. Adios. James Howard Kunstler back in the next hour with Michelle Malkin. She take it. Well, listen, I'm not sure. 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 I'm not sure